Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. So welcome to this edition of Authentic Leadership and I am delighted to have on the line with me or on the call with me, um, Dr. Gretchen Gagel. So, and she is the Managing Director of the Asia Pacific for Conversant, which I've actually done a little bit of work with in the past with um, the gentleman that you took over from. And she's also an affiliate professor at the Australian National University and the University of Denver. So that, that sounds very impressive. Welcome, Gretchen. Thank you. I'm so glad it sounds impressive, you know. <laughs> it's a facade. Yeah, well, you know, as long as it sounds good, it's all good. But you but you are very, very impressive. Um, now there's a there's a bit of a an American accent we've got going on. So you you grew up in Kansas City or in tell us a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, I grew up in Kansas City. People in um it's funny, they always say Kansas or Missouri. In Kansas City, literally is one big city with a, a road down the middle that says state line. So I was born in Missouri, but always lived on the Kansas side and uh, moved around the country, did uni in different places, and then spent 27 years in Denver. Wow. Wow. Are you from, are you from a big family? Do you? Um, no, you know, I actually have a brother and a sister, but I was 12 years after them. Um, they took a little break. I was actually on purpose. Nobody seems to believe that, but my mother was quite young when she had them and went to my father and said, you know, I think I want to have another one. She was 32. And this is so funny now. And he's like, oh, you're too old. You, you know, you can't have another kid. And, and I came along. So yeah, just the you, three of us. You, you sort of would have got spoiled, I would imagine, being the younger, with, by your siblings, what were you or not? Absolutely incredibly spoiled. And I have lots of pictures of them dressing me up. I was like a little doll to them. Um, and yes, I was um, incredibly spoiled and, and very close to my mom who passed away a few years ago. Um, but yeah, we had, a, we had a lovely, the last part of my growing up was on a Black Angus cattle quarter horse ranch um, the last five years that I was living in Kansas City. And it was a, it was a fun upbringing. Mm. Now you just you just moved to Australia a couple of years ago. You moved to Canberra initially. You came from Denver to Canberra, mm -hmm. and um, and more recently you've moved to Melbourne just before Melbourne went into lockdown. How has that experience been? Yeah, that's been very interesting. Um, I moved to Canberra. I spent most of my time on airplanes to Sydney and Melbourne and Perth for business. Um, that's where my husband's family is in Canberra. And we were actually only supposed to be in Australia for two or three years. I fell in love with it. Um, I started thinking, wow, I would love to be able to divide my time between Australia and the U.S. And lo and behold, a Boulder, Colorado, Melbourne firm found me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you leave our, lead our operation? So I'm supposed to be commuting back and forth between the United States. Obviously, that's not happening right now. Um, I did move to Melbourne in um, April 6th was my last flight from Canberra to Melbourne. So I was traveling through the Melbourne airport every week um, in March and in the first part of April. So it was very surreal to see the, 
the airport just kind of shutting shutting down but we're loving it here in melbourne this is where my husband's actually from he grew up here so we're loving it here mm, excellent excellent now you've um you've sort of been the president of two organizations and you've done a phd in leadership mm-hmm. and you teach it at the australian national university so tell us Tell us what your thoughts on authentic leadership, because it's a sort of, you know, it's a word that gets thrown around and a lot more now, but give us your insights on authentic leadership and what it means to you. Wow. That's, um, that's a big question. That's a big question. <laughs> Sorry. Like, yeah. But I, I thought a little bit about this um, coming to the podcast because um, it's very interesting to have these moments to sit back and reflect. My PhD was a bit of a blur towards the end. I defended 20 days before I moved here. And um, I spent three years in class on Saturdays with 14 other people from eight to five, learning about leadership and learning about agility. And I went all the way back to James McGregor Burns and leadership. Um, In fact, I'm looking at his book right now, written in 1978. And he has a quote out of that book that I use in my, in my coursework, um, even though it's, it's from 1978, I think it's so relevant because it's about mobilizing resources to a purpose, right? Leadership doesn't happen unless you're trying to really accomplish something um, that it's kind of directional and that you're trying to arouse, engage, and satisfy the motives of followers. So leadership doesn't happen in a vacuum and it happens from everywhere. I mean, it's not about a title. It's certainly not about a title. I've seen people that lead just as effectively from beside or or behind people, but to realize goals mutually held by both leaders and followers. So I think that authenticity also comes from the fact that you have that alignment, that everybody kind of is on board with what it is you're trying to accomplish. Mm. If um, in your current role uh, with um, Conversant, you look after Asia Pacific. Have you, have you, do you notice a difference in leadership um, across cultures? Yes. Countries? Yeah. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I notice it in my um, I notice it in my role and I notice it in my teaching. ANU is a very diverse student population. In fact, I just kicked off this class on Monday. We have um, Rwanda, India, China. Um, Rwanda, India, China, this is, this is going to, Nepal, and uh, one other country. I've had Bhutan, Mongolia, um, and it, probably the biggest difference is going back to Hofstad and his studies of culture, things like power distance and ability to, to challenge. When we talk about, for example, that great authentic leaders create psychological safety and that um, we really empower people to speak up that's a very culturally specific thing. So um, definitely see different manifestations of, of leadership in different cultures. Mm. So, so what do you do, you know, well, what's the advice you give? I mean, you, you teach, so obviously you'd have to change your teaching style, I guess, a bit to include all the different cultures, mm-hmm. but it it's, would be the same with leadership. How, I mean, how does a leader go about um, adapting to all the different cultures that they've got to lead I think that's a a key nugget in this whole leadership thing, because it's not just about the different cultures. It's it's that different people are different people. You know, I think of Star Wars and the stormtroopers coming out, you know, all in their white 
if people were like that, that would be awesome. It would make us so make it so much easier to lead people. But people are motivated by different things. They speak in different ways. And so where I start um, with my students and my clients is who am I? And really deeply understanding yourself. That's part of that authentic nature, right? I, I've probably taken, I don't know how many different profiles, the leadership circle, the DIS, the Highlands, the Myers-Briggs. Um, but, but deeply understanding how I'm wired, what, where I'm really strong, and um, you know, surrounding myself with people that build me out as a person. But then it goes into deeply understanding the per people that you're leading, and this is linking into your question about culture. You have to understand um, that it's just like you with storytelling, right? You have to understand the audience. You have to understand um, who those people are that you're trying to motivate, that you're trying to lead, what their characteristics are. And if you just take the DIS profile, for example, um, what Gabriel, what do you, do you know the DIS profile? Yeah, I think I'm a D. I, I, was I remember, I think I did it about 20 years ago. I'm pretty sure I was a yeah. D. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're a D too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hung out with you for two years. Uh, I'm a DI, so I'm very results oriented and I'm a people consensus person, that's the I. But even in sales and selling large consulting deals, I use this because if I'm dealing with a D, they want an executive summary. If I'm dealing with a DC, they want the executive summary with 100 pages of backup. If I'm dealing with a C, they want a certain thing. Or if I'm dealing with an S, S is a very logic and process. So it's a lot about understanding your audience as a leader and the, and the different people culturally, geographically, gender, um, how they're wired, their disc profile, et cetera, and that people are motivated by different things. Have you have you noticed a, a specific difference um, coming from you know a lot of your leadership roles have been in America to mm -hmm. coming to Australia just recently? Is there anything that sort of stands out that think that, that like it's very different between America and Australia the way we operate or however? Yeah, you know it's interesting you ask that. One of the things I've been doing over here is running a women's leadership program for the Australian Pipeline and Gas Association. Uh, I'd never done a women's leadership program before, but I consult in engineering and construction quite a bit. And I was speaking at their conference um, two weeks after I got here in Darwin. And they were talking about a lack of diversity in the industry. And, and I said, hey, you know, let's, let's run a women's leadership program. And through that, we have 74 women in three cohorts now. One of the things that's come up, and it's definitely not just a gender specific thing, is kind of the tall poppy syndrome. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, and my students, my Australian students talking about it as well. It's definitely, uh, a, it manifests itself in a different way than it does in the United States, where um, there's a lot of concern about not being boastful or not being too, um, we spend a lot of time on personal branding and value statements and being able to say, hey, this is what I'm really good at. And, and how do we do that in a way back to authentic leadership? It's about authenticity and being genuine and not crossing that line into um, arrogant and boastful. So that's one difference I've seen. So do you, you'd say it's definitely more prevalent in Australia that we suffer from tall poppy syndrome? Yes. I think gender specifically that women um, across the globe 
suffer from that more and not be, um, especially male dominated industries because we're so accustomed to being, you know, I've given speeches with 600 people in the audience and there's 25 women and how you come across, you're very cognizant of how you come across as a woman. Um, but I, I don't think we have anything like tall poppy syndrome. We don't have anything that's named like that in the United States. Mm, yeah. I mean, I often talk about that with my storytelling styles where I talk about, you don't want to be a bragger, you especially in Australia. You don't want to be, people don't want to feel like you're bragging. Um, where in America, it's like you, that people could say the same thing in America and it would just be seen as, well, yeah, you're just talking about the good stuff you've done. So what's, you know, it's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah. I think the thing that's really interesting too, when I gave that first speech in Darwin, um, my emotional intelligence coach has uh, commented that being a woman in a woman executive in construction for many, many years in the United States, especially I was with an investment banking firm that I kind of have to run around on a high power, you know, think power stances. Right. Um, and I was very mindful coming over here of toning myself down and having a huge amount of humility. The first speech I gave was about, how energy companies, because of San Bruno, the explosion, and different things in the United States have created more alliances with their contractors. But I said, I have no idea if this is applicable in Australia. I'm just a girl from Kansas who married an Australian, wants to support him coming over here to spend time with his family, and wants to figure out how to do fun things. So I have no idea if this is applicable over here. So um, really tried to come into it with a lot of humility. Mm. You you make a good point. Um, often people think, well, it's it's around or being authentic, authentic leadership, authentic or real communication. It's just about being you, and it's not this. Well, if you don't like it, you know, so what? But it's not about that. And I think it's it's um what you've done. You've always got to read your audience. You've always got to read the environment because not not being able to do that. It just means you could be delivering a talk, you could be leading a team, and it just doesn't land because you haven't slightly altered the way you were. And it's not changing the way you were, uh, but it's slightly altering it. I mean, you know, we all behave slightly different in front of our parents and our children, you know, as opposed to our friends, but it's still, ultimately, we're still the same, aren't we? Yeah. So I just went through a really interesting exercise. Um, I rehired my emotional intelligence coach. Um you know, some time for reflection. I think the this this time, this disruption is making us be very reflective. Um, I'm about to turn 56. I started thinking, oh my gosh, I'm four years away from 60. How the hell did that happen, right? And uh, as an exercise, I went through every profile that's ever been done on me. And I wrote a list of all the awesome things that it said about me and all the areas for improvement. And we all have those lists. I mean, that you know, and really digging in with my emotional intelligence coach about um, self-awareness and empathy are the two things that, that I'm working on. But having that conversation of how do you not lose who I am? Because people describe me as passionate and driven and, you know, this, but I can also be overwhelming and whatever. And it's about a dial. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about like, like you said, you're not losing who you are, but how do you, um, how do you dial it down so you're still passionate, but you're not overwhelming? Um, it's a really interesting exercise. I, I love the lifelong journey of continuing to learn about ourselves and improve. Yeah, I love that metaphor of a dial because you do need to dial it up or dial it down depending on the environment, what you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, I've got to ask you about an emotional intelligence coach because this is, I'm assuming this is different from your, you know, day-to-day executive coach. And you've said you've rehired the emotional intelligence coach. So I've never heard of an emotional intelligence coach before. So what do you do there? Yeah. So it's really fascinating. He's a, he's a good friend of mine, Brent Darnell. He's been doing emotional intelligence in the construction industry for 20 years in the United States. So you can only imagine 20 years ago what his reception was um, from the you know, hard-edged superintendent in the field talking about that touchy-feely emotional intelligence. He, um, I've taken the emotional intelligence test three times. Um, the EIQ, EQI. I was going to say, that's not because you failed the first two. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's changed over time. And the thing that he stresses is that personality is fairly set, but emotional intelligence can be learned. And that's what I think is so fascinating. So um, he, the reason I ended up with him as a coach originally is kind of a funny story when I became president of the consulting firm in the United States, I feel very strongly about personal development. And I gave our management team, everybody had $5,000 to go spend on personal development. And the first year, nobody spent it. So I said, great, I'm spending it for you. We have an emotional intelligence coach. His name is Brent Darnell. I'm very curious about this topic and he's going to be working with all of us. And we took him to two of our retreats and, um, it's just like any, any other kind of coach. Um, right now, emotional intelligence comes from being able to understand your own emotions and then understand the emotions of others and be able to regulate that so you're optimizing your relationships with people and understanding um, that amygdala hijack that our friend Kristen Hansen talks about so much in neuroleadership where we're triggered. We have um, emotions that... Uh, there's this flower petal he gave me where you can go from annoyance to anger to rage and how are you regulating that? And so, um, so yeah, I'm working on my emotional vocabulary right now. Mm. I, 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 you know, the, as you've been talking, I'm thinking it, it's probably one of the most critical keys, emotional intelligence to authentic leadership, to, you know, being, being aware and more aware. Do, do you think you get, we get better at that with age? Like, do you think if we're tuned into it and we're open to it, that through experience, wisdom, that we will just get better at it? Actually, according to Brent, and I'm not an expert in this field, we start losing our emotional intelligence at between 55 and 60, which is one of the reasons that I'm working on it. And when you think about, my mother had dementia for 10 years. I used to affectionately call her Benjamin Button because, um, you know, you have to maintain some sense of humor when you're sitting by somebody's side watching them kind of disappear into themselves. But even my, my um, you know, that you lose your filter uh, when, you, when you think about it. Um, they'll say things that you wouldn't normally say. <laughs> they kind of lose their filter. Well, they are losing their emotional intelligence. And so um, that's one of the reasons that I'm working on it. I don't want to backslide in any way. And um, I think it's, I, I think it's just another um, way that we're learning about the brain and how the brain is wired and um, the, the uh, primitive part of our brain and the amygdala and they trigger those emotions and we're not even conscious of the fact that we're having a reaction and that's where those words can come out of our mouth that we think, you know, you go to bed at night and think, wow, those weren't the right words at that moment. Um, I think there's something we can learn about that. 
Mm. You, I mean, you've said you're into professional development, so of, of yourself, which you clearly are. Um, just when you were talking there before, it was like the reason you've got your emotional intelligence coach because apparently at 55 you can start losing it. So it's sort of, um, you know, like winding back time. How do you stop that from naturally progressing? And I, I noted, I've also noticed from some of your social posts that you're into running, and it, it just actually makes me think of the same thing. That um, you know, I'm I'm 53, and it's you get so many people saying, oh, you know, you want, once you sort of hit your 50s, you shouldn't run as much, you shouldn't do this, you naturally gain weight, and it's just what ha- you know what happens to women in their 50s, and I always go well that may be what happens to the average person, but what what if we put a conscious effort to wind the clock back? So what if we put a conscious effort into getting really physically fit? So we're actually now fitter than we were, like we're as fit as we were when we were 30. And I think you're doing the same thing with your running that I know you're doing, but also this emotional intelligence. What, well, what at, in our 50s, we put all our work into this. So we were more emotionally intelligent than we were when we were 35. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, this running thing has been crazy. The only reason I'm running is because the gym's closed and my husband is a cook. That's what he does for fun. I've actually lost 20 pounds um, as of yesterday since I started running because I creeped up. It's like you said, you just you get older, your metabolism is declining. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm on 1,200 calories a day. That's like nothing. I actually run so that I can drink wine. That's that's. absolutely why i run i know there's a reason why i liked you i'm a similar thing as like if i run if i like burn off 600 calories on a run i could have a few drinks of wine yeah it's chocolate and wine that's exactly why i run i but i what i've learned too is that um i get a mental benefit from running and it's interesting though my emotional intelligence coach said i should do something lower impact like tai chi or something and this is where you have to take the coaching, but also understand who you are and say, you know what, running in the park right now is the best thing that I can do for my mental well-being. I listen to the birds. I love the birds in Australia. Mm. They're just um, crazy. There's lorikeets and, and galahs and everything in this park that I run in. But I think, um, yeah, we can either just let it all go. The other thing is we can just stop learning. I think that I don't ever want to stop learning about something. And um, so to re-engage in learning about emotional intelligence or to learn about neuro- neuroscience, um, especially with the advances in fMRIs, um, it all contributes to this learning journey about learning about leadership and teams and people. Uh, I've often said I wish I'd started out in psychology instead of engineering. It would have done me a lot more good for the path that my life took. I loved engineering. I did love engineering school, but um, I, I don't know. I'm just um, curious. I'm just a curious person and I want to make sure I keep learning about things. Yeah, it's critical, especially like in this environment of technology where it, it, the advances are so fast. It was um, the moment you think, uh, I really don't need to keep abreast of this. The, the gap, the gap will just widen so quickly before you know it. And, you know, we're all living a lot longer, so we need to, to keep up with it. Well, and I met with them. Um, I have good friends that have an international event company and I met with them the other day and what he said is that the technologies that we're going to be using in six months haven't even been invented yet. And we're going to look back at Zoom and it's going to be like Pong. Yeah. And um, so put strap in 
Gabriel, because the technology rocket is about to take off in the next six to 12 months. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm just noticing all the different platforms for doing conferences. I'm sure they didn't even exist three months ago when they're all out there. Mm-hmm. Hey, one of the things you do, you've done your PhD on and you focus on is organizational agility. So, I mean, two years ago, agile was, you know, the hot topic now, but now with everything happening with coronavirus, like agility pivot, everyone's pivoting. Um, what, what's your take on that? Like what, how are you seeing, you know, are some companies or some type of people responding better with this current environment than others? Yeah. It's interesting to go back to why I started a PhD, which I accidentally ended up in a PhD. It's kind of a funny story. I was looking for a, a master's and found this PhD that only accepted applications once every four years and the application was due in three weeks. And I kind of went, oh, well, I'll throw it in and poof, I accidentally end up with a PhD. But what I wanted to learn, it was very deliberate. Um, I've seen where burning platforms like a pandemic create change. But when you don't have a burning platform, but you realize that you are changes are going to happen. I think of this like a tennis player, like your Serena Williams or, um, you know. Um, Let's go with Serena Williams. <laughs> I can't think of the Australian. I just saw her play in the Open last Sam Goza. No, Ash. Oh, Ash Barty. Ash yeah. Barty. Yeah. I got to see, I've seen her the last two years play. You know that the ball's going to come over the net. You know the serve is going to happen. You don't know where it's going to go. So we know there's going to be changes in technology. We know there's going to be political elections and economic cycles and bushfires and, you know, viruses. We know all these things are going to happen. How do we, how are we on the balls of our feet as an organization? How are we change ready ahead of time? And um, how do we create that culture where change is kind of a norm? And so the companies that have done that ahead of time, where they're people, they hire learners. They, um, they think about another concept, organization ambidexterity is a really hot topic in management uh, theory. How do we exploit our current business models, but explore what our future models are? And how do we make deliberate decisions about how we allocate resources to that? it's not deliberate enough. So is 80% gonna go behind exploiting what we already do and 20% behind exploring this R&D? And, and your point about pivot, but that's, that's what that R&D is. Like what's the next thing look like um, for us? So the companies that- Is that different, doing, Gretchen, can I, is that different to what normal R&D was like, you know, 10 years ago? Is it, is, is it taken a different focus? Um, I don't think it's taken a different focus. I think the the major framework of agility that I studied was Worley Williams and Lawler's framework. It's how you're how you're flat in your organization, so you have as many sensors out in the environment as to what's going on. That those those sensors, people that are in the front lines, are feeding that information in in a deliberate way that decisions can be made about what that where that R and D needs to go. And um, that it's not an ivory tower leadership group that's completely disconnected from the front line. So they don't have the sensors that understand where that R&D needs to go. I think that's the critical part of agility and that we're really aligned as an organization. So 
when you're very aligned and you need to change direction, you can change quickly. It's like a speedboat, right? But if you're pretty scattered and fragmented as an organization and bureaucratic, it's much more difficult to get everybody herded into a different direction when something does happen in the business environment. So I think those are a couple of things that I learned about agility and studying it. Um, so your studies and you do a lot of work with organizations, helping them with that. Um, I feel like I need to ask you a question being an American and now living in Australia and with the current environment and the, and the different leadership in those two countries. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that or do you want to avoid speaking? The political discussion? Um, well, the, lead, the leadership discussion more than anything around the leadership through a crisis, leading yeah. a country through a crisis. We did a rapid research study in April where we talked to 35 CEOs around the globe and I interviewed some of my CEO friends in the United States. I think the interesting thing right now is that the social unrest is actually seen as a bigger challenge than the pandemic in the United States. And as we think about leadership uh, and social license, the business roundtable in the United States came out with a statement last year that um, it's beyond shareholder value that corporations have an obligation to make a positive contribution to society. And so I think there'll be more and more pressure around that globally. I think it's manifesting. I think, frankly, Australia is ahead of the United States in thinking about social license. They were talking about social license at the Australian Pipeline and Gas Association meeting when I got here two years ago. And I thought, gosh, I heard, you know, I've been going to pipeline conferences in the United States. I haven't heard that. But what, what is the greater good? And in both countries, when the bifurcation of the haves and the have-nots, when that divide continues that's when there's going to be bigger problems and so i think that leaders need to be thinking about um that purpose and social license of their organizations and the contribution and the future of the world that we're trying to create Mm. Excellent. Thank you. That was, that was very deep. That was a lot deeper than what I thought. Yeah. I, did, I don't know if that's what you were looking for. No, yeah, I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm actually going to say, um, I should let all our listeners know that I did not give you any of these questions. <laughs> the fact that you have, have just, we've just, you've asked them brilliantly, answered them brilliantly is just a testament to your depth of knowledge and insight and wisdom into all this. But I did, I did give you a heads up on a couple of questions and I'm going to, going to flick to, so we're going to change tack now because this is authentic leadership and we want you, you know, the listeners to get a bit of an insight into yes. who you are. So, um, when you're not at work, uh, what's the th- one thing you love doing? And let's set the context. We're, we're both in Melbourne and we're still in lockdown at the moment. But, you know, maybe just generally when you're not at work, what do you love doing? I love playing golf. I play golf every weekend. Um, I'm very bummed. In two weeks, we were supposed to have another weekend out of the Mornington Peninsula playing those fabulous golf courses out there. Um, right now, we can only play nine holes with two people. Um, But yeah, I took up golf when I was um, 22 and the only female operations manager in the country out of 62 at a company and they all played golf. And I called my dad and I said, you're buying me golf clubs. I need to play golf with the guys. And I fell in love with it. It's very relaxing. I love seeing nature. And so, yeah, golf is my thing. And concerts that won't be going to those for a while. That's my other thing. (laughs) Going to them for a while as well. Um, 
What's thing? What's one thing you love or hate that maybe people you work with wouldn't know about you? Is there anything? One thing I love or hate that people that work with me wouldn't know. It's funny because my husband being a cook, he always makes fun of me because I don't like raw tomatoes. <gasps> my God, I don't like raw tomatoes either. Yeah, I, 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 cook, I love cooked tomatoes. In I love a sandwich, I can't... I can't when people put them in the sandwich, I don't get that. And I just really don't like it. So they would, look, we've got a few things in common. We run to drink and um, we and don't, we like, don't raw, like raw tomatoes. Tomatoes, tomatoes, what we say. Um, do you have a favourite quote? Now, you've already given me a quote you love, but do you have another favourite quote you love? And, you know, what is it? And do you use it a lot? So this is when I feel like I'm getting old and I'm, I'm shoving so many new things in my brain in Australia. I joke that my hard drive's full and things pop out the back and I'm not really in control of what. It's Gandhi's um, Be the Change You Want to See. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I got that exactly right, but um, the concept of that, of, um, you know, if you want to see a change, step up and do something like act, let's help act ourselves into it. We can sit back and go, oh, that's someone else's problem or it's too big a problem. Um, you know, right now I'm helping to feed people in Kenya um, because uh, I was there last summer and now all the tourists are gone and I made friends with the woman over there and I'm very into systems change, but right now people just need food and some of my girlfriends are helping me send money over for food. Um, and so it's just a, a global sisterhood kind of thing. So, you know, just acting our way into being different and stepping up. It's, um, it's, it's quite ironic you use that quote because that ties into almost the first thing you spoke around, which what's authentic leadership. And, um, you, you literally said it's not a title and I'm a firm believer on that. It's, it's taking, taking a stance on something or doing something and don't expecting other people to do it, but do it yourself. So Mm -hmm. whether you have got the title of leadership, I think that's important to get in and do it. But, um, don't wait for permission. Don't wait for a title. Just if you see something and you're passionate about it and you want to fix it, just go and do something about it. You share this with Edgar Schein. He, um, in his book, Humble Leadership, uh, I've been so fortunate to become friends with him, but that's how he defines leadership. And it's somebody that sees things that need to be done in a different way and they do something about it and affect change. And that's, that's how he thinks about leadership. Mm. Excellent. You are very well read and you remember a lot of stuff. I'm very impressed with that. I, I tell you what, I couldn't read. We, I have a, a new friend in my new company and she also did her PhD in her fifties. And I was so glad to hear this from her. She said, I couldn't read for a year. I could not read for a year after my PhD because you drown 400 research studies, you know, a hundred books. So I'm just starting in the last few months to read again. So it's nice that you say that I'm well read. Although I have read all of your books. Oh, thank you. Thank you. They're you can quote me. Feel free to quote me at any time. <laughs> um, okay, so you know I'm, I'm a big fan of reducing the amount of corporate jargon and un- unnecessary use of acronyms. Is there a corporate jargon phrase you absolutely hate? Like if you could ban it, you would. Um, yes. I, I would have to say... I don't have a phrase that pops into my mind right now, but the use of jargon in general, I don't think the average person understands how much jargon is used and moving from country to country 
and the things that people say that are acronyms or jargon. And I, I have a feeling that there's other people sitting in the room that don't understand what they're talking about. I'm the dumb blonde American. I just raise my hand and say, hey, could somebody stop and explain to me what that, what that phrase means or what that acronym means or something? Um, I think that we, I have a philosophy, like even in branding that a 10 year old should be able to understand what you're talking about or it's too complicated. Mm. Um, so I don't have a phrase that pops into my mind, but the overall use of, um, and consultants are the worst. We just put a proposal together and I just went through with a red pen and just went consultant jargon. Consult, you know, what does that big fancy word mean? Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I've got a theory. Consultants make up half of it because it's, and one of the reasons we use jargon, most, the main reason we use jargon is we actually don't know we, we, we're using it. So it's like yep. this ignorance, we don't even know. But a lot of the time we're using it to sound a lot smarter or to make something sound a lot more complicated than what it is. And I think professional service firms and consultants have that down pat. I think they do that very well. Hey, but there must have been some funny Australian sayings that when you came from America, you must have been, what, what the hell does that mean? Any of them? Oh, any kind of word like whinging or smashes or, um, you know, it's funny. I know that I've been here for two years. I'm starting to acclimate to them. And yes, there were lots of them that I didn't understand. And the funny part is my sister-in-law, my husband's twin sister lives in Canberra. One day after about a year, I said, you know what? It would have been so great if there was a book of all this Australian slang. And she said, there is one. We've just had more fun watching you try to figure it out. So we purposely didn't give you the book. <laughs> oh, that's gold. It's like, you know, flat out like a lizard drinking and all those. Exactly. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Or reckon. I say reckon a lot. And when I'm speaking to my American clients, I go, what is this reckon? And I was like, oh, you know, it's, I, I think. Yeah. Well, how are you doing? We don't say that. Yeah. I don't know how to answer that. Or how are you going? How are you going? How are you going? How you going? And I had to practice like, what do I say? Going fine? I don't even, I don't know how to answer that. Like, good, but, you? Yeah. So we say, how are you doing? Or how are you today? Or whatever. It's just a different, it's just a different way. I went to school in Texas. My first degree was in Dallas. First of all, they called me a Yankee and I was from Kansas City. So that tells you, and I figured out anybody who's not from Texas is a Yankee, but they used a word fixin' and fittin'. I'm fixin' to go to the store. And so it's interesting, even within um, countries that you have these different colloquialisms that people use that aren't in other places. Y'all, I still do say y'all every once in a while. I love y'all. I reckon y'all is good. All y'all. It's better than yous. Like we say yous. It was like, it's not yous even guys. A That's me. Guys. Just like, <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm going to finish on three quick fire questions. Um, what's the one meal you love cooking? I cook steaks. I cooked them last night. I grew up on a Black Angus cattle ranch and it is my comfort food to cook a really good steak and um, roasted veggies. Now that I'm getting older, I'm staying away from the carbs. So big giant pile of vegetables and steak. And I would imagine a glass of red, not far. Yes. <laughs> and a glass of red. And I'm very, I'm very fond of the calves here and the shrazes. I really, I'm fond of all the wine in Australia. It's amazing how much wonderful wine there is here. Excellent. What's your favorite 80s song or artist? 
Oh gosh, I would say you um, too is one of my favorite artists. I've seen them several times. I saw them in Sydney when they were here last year. And I think the first time I saw them, I was in uni and that would have been um, 1982 or 1983. So yeah, I'd have to go with you too. Yeah, there's something really cool when you have followed a band like over decades and and you know you see them. I'm I'm a, I'm not like that with you too. I'm not like that with Kylie Minogue. Where I went and saw her first concert. I know probably about 25, 26 years ago, and I've sort of gone to almost every time she's come out. And in the last few years, taking my daughters, and there's something really cool about that. Well, Fleetwood Mac was my first concert in 19. 19- 78 and I saw them the last time they were here in Australia too so it's really been fun to see groups like Maroon 5 and Florence and the Machine and Elton John here that I've seen in the United States it creates a connection back to home too to see them. Mm. I kicked I did a bit of a ticket uh, bucket list uh, when I was in New York last time to see um, Billy Joel live at Madison Square and I saw him probably about 30 years ago when he was in Melbourne and at Kuyong, which they don't even do concerts at Kuyong anymore. Mm-hmm. And we were in the sides and he ran off stage and he disappeared and then he came up the stairs where I was standing and he jumped up on the seat in front of me and I, he put down his hand to get and he, I was holding his hand and my boyfriend at the time was holding his butt, like holding him up. And then so then... That, that, that was about 30 years ago and saw him live at Madison Square Garden about 18 months ago. It was very what a special thing. Music yeah. creates great memories. It does, it does. Final question. If you were to give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? It would be to... Um, it would be to be kinder to myself. Um, you know, we can all be hard, especially those that are, of us are, that are hard charging and um, out there to make a difference in the world. And when you're hard charging, you try things, you risk, you fail, you, you know, you fall down, you scratch your knee. And I would look at myself and say, always be sure that you're loving yourself and that you're being kind to yourself because you have to be your own biggest fan. Um, that's the one thing that... Um, that you can count on um, is loving yourself. Yeah, that's such a good advice because we're often our um, worst critic and wouldn't wouldn't imagine what we could achieve if we we were our best fan as opposed to our worst critic. We'd just get out of our own way, wouldn't we? And we'd get on and do it. Yep. I love to say too, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? That phrase. Yeah. Um, So yeah, love yourself and not be afraid. Yeah, excellent. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for um, just taking all my random questions that you had no preparation for. I One day soon, I'm positive we will be coming out of lockdown and we'll be able to catch up and um, have a nice coffee somewhere. But have I am I right in thinking you've moved to Melbourne but don't drink coffee? Is that correct? <laughs> I have never that? had a cup of coffee in my entire life. And Starbucks right. was actually a client at one point. And they don't ask you if you want coffee. They say, what kind would you like? So I would fib a little bit and say, oh, I'm on to water today. But yeah, I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. And now I've had no caffeine for 10 years. Right. Um, so well being in melbourne starbucks isn't even coffee so you no. can be just like no. I, i've learned that i have learned that 
Excellent. All right. One day soon we will catch up in person, but thank you so much for being part of the podcast series. Really enjoyed having you with us. Yeah. Thrilling to be a guest. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the Authentic Leadership Series. Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.